Hello fellow adventurers and welcome to the Nerd Lab, where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. My name is Marvin and I'm an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop a cooperative fantasy card game. For this podcast, my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey. Together, we will explore the secrets of different game mechanics and reach the next level as a game designer. Today, we have a great guest on the show. Um, one of his earlier games is an industry highlight and has won a Gamer's Choice Award for the best board game in 2004. One of his newer creations is a super cool fantasy-themed card game with an innovative drafting mechanic. And yeah, I mean, if you know me and this podcast just a little bit, you know that this is already enough to get me very, very excited. Our guest is also yeah, an English professor at uh, Virginia Community College, or was one, I, I'm not sure about his uh, current uh, state. Um, but yeah, so I'm a little bit afraid whether I will pass today with my poor English skills and my German accent. Um, but other than that, I'm very happy to have him on board for today's episode. So please welcome Bruce Glasgow, the designer of uh, Betrayal at House on the Hill and Fantasy Realms. Welcome to the show, Bruce. Hello, pleased to meet you, Marvin. Good to so, be here. Yeah, we are happy to have you. So before we um, yeah, get into the, in the details of today's show um, and talking about um, your games and the design process um, and um, specifically about how to create expansions for games. Um, would you please be so kind and yeah, introduce yourself and tell our listeners um, yeah, how it came to be that you, are, uh, you became a, a game designer? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I'm, let's see, my name is Bruce Glasgow. I am 58 years old. So I've been doing board games since, uh, well, I guess the uh, mid-70s thereabouts when I was in high school. And uh, boy, really, the, those early board games were pretty poor, some of them. <laughs> some of those early ones that I remember ordering in the mail because... It was hard to find anything in a store, and then some of them were very disappointing. Uh, just even having uh, any game at all with a fantasy theme back in the 70s was exciting. I didn't really expect it to be good, but you know, if it, if it was something that didn't involve tanks, that was unusual enough back in those days. And uh, I think I first started designing uh, my first board game in the early 80s when I was in college. And then in the 90s, I started working on Betrayal at the House, house on the Hill. And that went through a prolonged development uh, process. It, it survived the fall of the first Avalon Hill and the resurrection of the second Avalon Hill as a subset of Wizards of the Coast as a subset of Hasbro. And then that was really my, my first successful game, particularly the second edition. And I actually started working on Fantasy Realms uh, not too long after it, uh, I was working on Betrayal at House on the Hill. And Fantasy Realms, sort of a game that I'd, I'd 
kicked around and sent off to various different publishers for about a decade before finally uh, WizKids picked it up. It also had a complicated publication history before it finally found a home. And uh, so since then, I've been working on a, an expansion, which should be hitting the store shortly. I don't know if you've got access to it. And, uh, and I also have a number of other projects that are in various stages, including being looked at by various companies. So uh, I also have one other board game called uh, Mystery Motive for Murder that was published by Mayfair. That one was not as successful as the other two and uh, had some interesting mechanics, but it never quite found an audience. But hopefully I'm in, still in mid-career and over the next decade or so, I have quite a number of other designs that hopefully will someday see the light of day and make it to the shelves. Yeah, we so hope so too. <laughs> let me know your questions. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I would prefer if we can talk a little bit more about fantasy realms. And mm -hmm. um, since you are, yeah, you just mentioned that an expansion will come out for that game. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, I would be... Uh, would propose to um, yeah to introduce and explain the game a little bit to the listeners before we get into the details, so that they have a good uh, yeah baseline um, from what we we can talk about. So, could you give a, a short explanation of how Fantasy Realms actually works as a game? Oh, absolutely! Uh, it is a non-collectible card game, just a single deck of cards, only fifty-three cards. I haven't quite got to the level of love letter of getting it down to 16 cards or however many that one has, but uh, it's, it's just a single deck of cards, but every card in the game is unique. And every card consists of a suit. There are 10 suits with five cards each and three wild cards and a base strength, which run from zero to 40 somewhat clustered towards the low end of that range. And then either a bonus or a penalty. With the higher the base strength, the tougher the penalty, the lower cards having bonuses instead for particular cards that you want to assemble in your hand. And you start with a hand, everyone starts with a hand of seven cards, and you are simply trying to improve your hand as much as you can to get the highest score by the end of the game. Because each card in your hand interacts with all of the other cards in your hand. So for instance, you might have a water elemental that gives you points for each other flood in your hand. Or you might have a world tree, which gives you a large bonus if every card in your hand is a different suit or you might have a gem of order, which gives you points if you have numerical runs among all of your base strengths. Certain cards are looking for and giving you bonuses for certain other cards. So for instance, the Hydra gives you a bonus if you also have a card, the, the Swamp with it. Or certain cards are looking for other suits, like uh, a sword needs a leader to wield the sword, or if, if nobody knows how to use it, it's just a hunk of metal. So the mechanic for the game is that on your turn, 
you may either draw from the deck or draw a discard card. And then uh, once you have drawn, you then discard to maintain a seven card hand. However, unlike in some games, all of the discard cards are spread out across the table. So when you draw from the discards, you may actually draw from anything that has been discarded by any player. And so as the game goes on, you have more and more options because you can see the possible cards that you may be able to draft for yourself, both now and in the future. And the game only lasts until there are 10 cards in the discard pile, at which time uh, you just sum up your hand. And some of the reviewers have said that the, the one thing that they find annoying about the game is that actually just adding up the points can be almost as time consuming as the game itself. The game is very short. It is designed to be a filler and most games only take about 10 or 15 minutes to play. But within that 15 minutes, there tend to be a lot of strategic decisions, whether you want to push your luck, whether you want to look for a particular card or go for something safe. And uh, the adding up at the end can be speeded up some by the score pile that comes with the game or just using a calculator. There's also an app that will score the hand for you. So that a lot of people have also said that the app really helps it at the table a lot. I, when I teach this game to people at conventions, I say this is the game that you play while you're waiting for that one person at your game night who is always late and you don't know when they're going to show up. And so you need something to just pass the time, but that will be over quickly so you can start the real game of the evening. It's, it's a filler game, but a lot of people have said it's, it's a very, certainly a very popular filler game as well. Yeah, that sounds like it uh, would fill the sweet spot that magic was supposed to fill. Uh, that that fill that filler spot when you wait for the last person to join for the for the uh, RPG campaign. Yes, everybody always says either, "Oh yes, we've got that guy in our campaign," or some people have said, "Oh yes, I am that guy <laughs> who's always a little bit late." Yeah, cool. So um, yeah, I have many follow up questions um, with regard to. To fantasy realms but um, maybe the first one what was the initial idea when you started the design process of that game was there anything particular that you wanted to achieve with it um, or were there other games that really inspired you that that were that sparked that first uh, interest to create the, this game or what was the start really the starting point and your core idea for the game I'm glad you asked that. And I, I remember exactly the occasion when I had the idea for this game. As I said, this was actually a game that was kicking around for a long time before it got published because I actually had the original for the game all the way back in, I believe, 1994 or 1995. It was shortly after uh, Magic first came out, Magic the Gathering. And... I was actually at the very first Gen Con when Magic was going, went for sale for the first time. I remember walking around at the convention and seeing, you know, first you see a few people playing in the corners and then more and then more and then more. And uh, by the end of the convention, everybody was playing it. I, I was able to stay in line. I got two decks of alpha cards. Uh, I, I was in it from the very beginning. 
And the next convention, a local convention that I went to, by then magic had really taken off. But I discovered that actually most of the people weren't really playing magic at the time. Instead, the trading economy was really taking off and everybody was swapping cards. I was able to actually trade for an ancestral recall, which is now a very, very valuable card. And I was like, I think this one's a pretty good one. Somebody, somebody gave me a good deal on it. Uh, and um, as I was driving home from that convention, I was thinking, wow, that, that trading process, that trying to assemble your deck, of course, this was long before Dominion or any of the deck building games, but that idea of, of assembling a deck, find, finding cards that will work together, that will have a good synergy with one another, uh, you don't even need to go on and play the game of magic. That process of trading and building a deck or even just building a hand, maybe that's enough for a good game all on its own. And I think when I got home from that convention, I, I sat down and, and wrote out my first list of cards that I thought would go well with each other, came up with the idea of the 10 suits and so forth. And, and really that was the genesis of fantasy realms right then. Uh, and from then to now, you know, I've tweaked the cards. There are a couple of cards that I've taken out and a couple of cards that I've taken in, but really most of the idea for the game was pretty, with the bonuses, penalties, the, the base values and so forth, a, a lot of it was settled down in the first couple of weeks. And I got a deck of index cards, the initial Cards just had the names written in uh, different colors of ink on the top of the card for the different suits, and then the description and the bonuses and penalties written in in pencil. But uh, yeah, it's it hasn't changed a lot since that initial version. Yeah, that's actually kind of kind of cool if you can come up with an idea that's already very solid so that you don't have to change uh, that much. Um, that's very valuable if you have that good starting point. So I hope you still uh, possess those uh, alpha uh, uh, starters or boosters and that ancestral recall for your <laughs> yeah, pension. I do, yes, yes. <laughs> that, that'll be my... Uh... My children's inheritance someday. <laughs> Perfect. They'll see if they're still worth anything in the future. But if people play magic, still play magic, there'll still be some good cards there. Cool. So, um, yeah, let's talk about some uh, specific mechanics from Fantasy Realms because um, you mentioned that card distribution mechanic that you use in the And not in not in the beginning of the game. It's it is the game, I would say, um, where you can decide as a player whether you yeah draw a card from the deck or from the uh, the discard uh, lane. Um, so how did you how did you come up with that specific mechanic, and why didn't you go for a more traditional draft if those were around at that time? Um, like the drafts of, I don't know, Sushi Go or um, uh, Seven Wonders or so? Actually, yes. This I was working on this game, and the original idea did predate most of those drafting games. Maybe not Fairy Tale. Fairy Tale was, was, is one of my favorite games. But, of course, you know, there were plenty of games that 
allowed you to draw either from a deck or a discard. The only thing that I changed with that was that the, all the discards would be available instead of just the top one. And actually, I think, looking back at my notes, that to some extent that was just a filler mechanic. I knew that I wanted to do some sort of set collecting, but I experimented with a number of different mechanics. I experimented with an auction mechanic where you had uh, beads or something that you could buy cards from other players, put, put a card up for auction and then see if anybody wanted to trade it with you. Uh, I have also tried it with a drafting mechanic, like in, in the more modern versions, like Seven Wonders, uh, which is another one of my favorite games. But what I found was that really the, uh, the draw from the de deck or the discard, it worked really well. It gave a timer to the game that uh, seemed to really work well. And I just none of the other methods that I experimented with uh, seemed to work quite as well as the, uh, as the method that I started out with. Uh, I could put a drafting version out online, I suppose, and uh, I've tried that once or twice, but I just keep coming back to the original version. Maybe it's just because I'm used to it. But uh, again, it seems to make the game go pretty quickly, although it does mean that you know, you don't, you're not playing all the time like you were in those drafting games. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think it's very good to have uh, a different distribution mechanic there, and it's one that hasn't been used too often, I would say. Um, and, um, I really, I really like it. And, um, what I, what I really like about the, um, the discard row here is, um, and you just mentioned it, that it is, uh, also the end game trigger of the game. So I'm a big, big fan of, uh, using, uh, different components, mechanics, or areas in a game for multiple purposes. And for your game, you, your discard row is the end game trigger. So if I think ten, if ten cards are in the discard row, the game the game ends. So how did you how did you come up with that uh, with that end game trigger? Was that there from the very beginning when you started to design the game, or was that something that you added later? Uh, as I say, that was. Something that, well, I needed an end game trigger, of course. And as soon as I thought of this idea that you could spread out the discards and draw from them, it sort of lent itself to being the end game trigger. Uh, one other thing about that mechanic, by the way, and this might be something that some of your listeners might know more about than I am, than I do. Uh, I've just heard within the last couple of weeks that there is a new game in the hotness of Board Game Geek called Red Rising, which I believe uses a mechanic similar to that, to the idea of Fantasy Realms. And I heard that because actually my editor at WizKids said that the designer of Red Rising is a big fan of Fantasy Realms and has been giving me credit on interviews, which I appreciate, and he's going to send me a copy of Red Rising. I haven't seen it yet, but... I'll share that, that if people like Fantasy Realms, maybe Red Rising will be something that will do something similar. And I, I'm looking forward eagerly to finding out exactly how. Yeah, I've, I've heard of it. Um, it's uh, it's published by Jamie Stackmeyer, isn't it? So um, from Stonemeyer Games, who I know is also a, um, a fan of Fantasy Realms. 
And yes, I, I've talked with uh, a number of game professionals. It's another way of sort of getting my foot in the door besides betrayal to say, because as you say, uh, uh, people from Academy Games I've made contact with who've played it. Uh, I have a lot of friends who worked at Mayfair when that was a extant company, and some of them were, were going around and showing it off to other companies. So yeah, I, I, it, it does seem to be sort of a gamer's game and to some extent for publishers and people like that. It seems that you are very well connected in the board game industry. So let me ask you a question that's completely, uh, let's say, off topic now. Um, so how, how important would you say um, is it for an aspiring game designer to be well connected in, in the industry to be successful um, with their first game, let's say? I don't think anybody really starts off being well connected. Uh, I did happen to be lucky enough to uh, live in Charlottesville, which was the headquarters for uh, what was formerly Iron Crown Enterprises, which used to do role-playing games. They did the Middle Earth uh, collectible card game. And so I had some friends within that group. And then those people then sort of moved over after Iron Crown Enterprises mostly folded up in stores. And those people went on to get behind Mayfair games and were doing all the settlers of Catan. Uh, one thing that you could do to make some contacts is if you can find a playtesting group. That's also uh, really a good place to learn the craft of game design. Uh, I, uh, I worked a lot in a playtesting group for Mayfair with uh, a guy named Coleman Charlton, who was the creative director for Mayfair. And he was sort of my mentor. It's, it's really good to have someone with a lot of experience in game design who can sort of say, well, this isn't working. Let's try doing it this way. Another good thing about getting in with a game test playtesting group, uh, it, it, it helps if you see it as work. No, you're not just playing games for fun. You might play a game that isn't very good and you finish an entire game and the person who's running the session says, well, that didn't work, but what if we try changing this rule and then let's play it again? And you say, okay, because that's the person who's buying the pizza, so <laughs> that's what you're there for, that's <laughs> what you do. And that can really teach a lot about just mechanics and uh, um, how the whole game design process works. So yeah, Col having Coleman Charlton there was as a mentor was very helpful for me. Yeah, that's uh, that's very good advice. Thank you very much. Um, so I can I can second that because uh, playtesting is very very important for all of the uh, the the game designers, and you learn. Um, in both in both directions, when some other game designers play your games, but also when you play their games. So um, we run, uh, let's say, monthly game design events, playtesting events um, on our Discord server where we um, play each other's games. But there are also um, other communities out there. Um, I can also link them in the show notes um, who meet uh, or which meet uh, more regular. And I can um, yeah, I can only uh, recommend for you to to join those uh, those uh, playtesting groups it's very helpful okay let's get back to to fantasy realms so um 
You mentioned that those uh, the cards can have values between um, one and forty. Um, so that's quite quite a big range. And um, when it comes to point scoring at the end, uh, that can even uh, can even be more. Um, so that you end up in the game with uh, more than 200 or even 300 uh, points in the end. So um, have you, um, how, how did it come that the numbers um, are so, so, so high in, in, in this game? Is this something that you would say is um, something you planned for in the very beginning, something you like or that you would change um, from, a, from, a, uh, from an actual uh, nowadays perspective? Um, Because you mentioned that it is, can be kind of uh, difficult in the end to do all the math and um, the, the point scoring. Yes, I think looking back at it now, uh, if I had tried to sort of apply a mathematical formula to figure out the base strengths of all of the different cards from the beginning, uh, I, without having played the game first, I don't think I would have been able to do it simply because there are so many variables and so many different ways that the cards interact with each other because each card not only gives bonuses to particular other cards, uh, but also is given bonuses by other cards. And, and, and you know, there's all these reciprocal reactions. So when I originally came up with the first set of values and bonuses and so forth, um, I completely did it off the seat of my pants. Uh, I, I'd, I'd love to say that I had a spreadsheet formula and everything, <laughs> but it was really just sort of a gut feeling of, for instance, where the, where the shift should be between cards that started getting bonuses and uh, cards that should be getting penalties. And th that number is 14, by the way. Uh, but it's interesting because, in fact, the overall scores for the game, each card has got to be more than worth than 14. Uh, 100, mm -hmm. uh, even each, if each card is worth 20, 140-point hand is not really very likely to win. So it's odd that that turned out to be the break point between the bonuses and penalties. But as I said, I started off with the seat of the pants, but then after I had assigned all of those values, I play-tested the heck of the, out of that game. As I said, it was really more than a decade between the time I designed it and the time that it finally got picked up by a publisher. And during that time, uh, I, I, I like keeping records. I'm a meticulous record keeper. And so I would just, you know, this is before I got married, I would just sit at home for a couple of hours, and I would just deal out four hands and play the entire thing against myself. That way I'm sort of the control because I don't need to rely on uh, different people's skill levels. My skill level is constant. And then I would record which cards are in the winning hand, which cards get discarded in that game. And I would do that over and over and over. And I probably have during the playtesting process, you know, 200, 300 hands that I have recorded. And I would just sort of make a check mark for which cards are in each winning hand so that I could see over time, all right, this card is, is getting discarded a lot. It's not in very many winning hands. I need to boost its value. 
this one is really, really good and I need to tone it down a little bit. And so that's the combination where I came up with all of those numbers. It was a combination of seat of the pants at the beginning and then very exhaustive playtesting. And I've done that with the expansion as well. I Nowadays, uh, I don't have to just keep hand notes or spreadsheets. Uh, my method of playtesting when I was doing this expansion for the game is that uh, I will play a game with my friends or I will play a game by myself. And then at the end, I will pull out my phone and just take a picture of the winning hand for and or each of the different hands. And I write the score for each hand next to it. And then every couple of weeks, I will sit down on my computer and transfer all of those values and which cards were discarded, which cards were in the winning hands. I, I transfer all of that to a spreadsheet so that again, I can sort of figure out which ones need to be adjusted. Ideally, you know, every card would be just as good as every other card. I'm never quite going to uh, achieve that goal, but if I take really good records and do the spreadsheets, I can sort of trim down the outliers so that the poorer cards and the better cards uh, will come closer and closer to their average value. And there were a number of cards in the uh, original set that have been boosted because of that. Uh, you know, the Empress went up, Forest went up, a couple of other cards just... They were underperforming, and I could tell that because of the records that I was keeping. Did you also analyze the the records from the companion app? I mean, that's where all of the players, or not all of the players, but all of the players using the companion app, um, yeah, enter their their winning and losing hands. So that would be a great pool of a uh, of a source of information for that balancing. Yeah, I uh, I don't think that that information gets uploaded anywhere or if it does nobody's ever told me uh, <laughs> that would that would be interesting I suppose um, unfortunately the the scoring app is not perfect there are a couple of uh, glitches in it here and there uh, independent company did that and I, I believe they're going to be fixed at some point but uh, and and also of course by the time the scoring app came out the the game had been out for some time and I didn't really want to change any of the values of the cards then sure. But uh, I, I have noticed that people do feel that there are certain cards, for instance, in the two-player game, if you're using the optional rules for the two players where you draft, that there are some cards that people are more likely to keep. But really any card can be just exactly the card that you need in certain circumstances. And that's what I, what I was going for as well. Okay. So just maybe one more follow-up question regarding the... Um the companion app because uh, i've seen someone asked it in the in the forum uh, will there be a companion app for the expansion as well uh, that will be up to whiz kids i do not know the answer for that <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, i hope uh, so but uh, i do not know okay um let's uh try to um move a little bit into the direction of um, expansions because you mentioned that there will be an expansion for the game coming up this year um, and um, before we talk about what the expansion actually is about and what uh, all about the content that uh, it adds to the game, I have a, um, a question 
to the to the to the base game that then yeah okay yeah relates with the with the expansion question so um the game is very much about combos yeah um yes. so you have um 50 something 53 cards or so in the game and many mm -hmm. of those yes. cards um refer to very specific other cards by uh, by name or so um and so if you then add new cards with an expansion to this uh, to this environment um it would actually make it harder to find those very specifically mentioned cards to create those um those combos so um my question here is um was an expansion always in your mind when you when you started that game or was this uh this kind of an um of difficult for you to create an expansion um, because your combos are very specific in the game the answer to that is first of all i had not planned on there being a expansion when i first designed the game there were a couple of cards that i had in the original set I think I may have had some ideas for a building suit with a castle and things like that, but I gave up on those and I was just looking for a publisher. It never even occurred to me to have an expansion. But when I did get the green light for an expansion and I was thinking that some more suits would be useful, yes, the fact that the suits as they currently existed would be diluted was certainly a concern, that it would be harder to get the, the sets or whatever. Or there might also be some cards like the, uh, um, the Gem of Order that might be easier to get with, with more lower cards. So what I did to try to counteract that dilution problem, which was fairly simple and straightforward, was that now instead of starting with seven cards in your hand, you start with eight cards in your hand. And instead of ending the game when there are 10 cards in the discard pile, you end the game when there are 12 cards in the discard. And because of that, the dilution at least feels as if it is being counteracted. You have more cards to deal with in your hand or one more card to deal with in your hand that gives you a little bit better chance of getting those combos. You can, uh, you can get more cards in the discard pile that you can pick up that will also give you that, uh, those opportunities for combos. And as far as you know, adding, there, there are three new suits in the game now, in the expansion. There's undead, buildings, and outsiders. Outsiders are sort of weird. Uh, so obviously going from a 53 card to a 68 card deck is going to make it a little bit harder to get some of those combos. Is the eighth card in your hand and the, the 11th and 12th cards in the discard, is that enough to make up for that dilution? I don't know. Again, the math would be really difficult. I'm not afraid of doing math, and every game design I've worked on has, has had a fair amount of calculation in it, but I don't know exactly how you'd figure something like that out. But Ultimately, I'm not sure that it matters. I think that maybe one tip I have to the game designers out there is that sometimes when you're playing a game, it doesn't matter so much whether it is actually balanced, 
whether it is actually fair. What's important is that it feels balanced and it feels fair. You feel like you had a chance of winning. You feel like you had a chance of getting that combo. And so when you're playing with the expansion, you feel like, well, you know, the deck's a little bit bigger, but I've got this extra card. It probably evens out. And whether it's exactly the same or not doesn't really matter so much. It, it, it's got that feeling that the balance is still maintained, and you can still get those combos. Uh, you just have to work at it. Oh, one other thing about the new expansion is that there are a couple of ways now that you can dive into the deck. There's a card called the Genie, which is worth negative points, but at the end of the game, you can dive into the deck and pull out any card that you want and add it to your hand. So that also helps to combat the dilution if there's a particular card that you need for a combo. Unless, of course, the card that you need is already in somebody else's hand, in which case you might be screwed. But there are some ways to get around that as well. Yeah, that's pretty pretty interesting because I, I, I took a, a brief look at the cards that come with the expansion and uh, actually the genie is the one that uh, that most excited me and uh, that also uh, yeah stood in my mind because it uh, yeah it's kind of a a nice new way of uh, getting the cards that you that you need. Um, it deals with the dilution that we mentioned, and um, I also just like the flavor of it—the genie that uh, fulfills you one wish. Uh, that it's kind of a very well, um, yeah, designed as a mechanic on the card as well. I think one of my favorite new cards of the Outsiders is the Leprechaun. You know, in the original game, there was the Necromancer. Who could you could draw a card from the discard pile. And now there are a couple of ways that you can add a card to your hand at the end or, or end up with a nine-card hand instead of just eight. The Leprechaun is a card where at the end of the game, you just draw the top card off of the deck and add it to your hand. And maybe it's good. Maybe it's bad. You don't know what it's going to end up with. It's sort of a bit of a crapshoot. But... The uh, uh, of course you can always have the rune of protection and then you're safe, but it, it just adds a little bit of suspense to the end there. Yeah, it's a, a, a cool little push your luck mechanic. So um, when it comes to those uh, those combos and you you mentioned them uh, quite a bit uh, in between the lines. Um, for example, you just mentioned that uh, you can have those uh, this other card that then uh, helps you to neglect the, the the negative effect that you might draw or so. Um, how did you actually start to create those those combos? Um, do you start by designing um, one card and then other cards uh, that somehow work together with with this one card, or um, do you design them as a Yeah, as a, as a group of four or five cards immediately. So do you have a specific method of creating combos? Uh, the answer to that, I, I was just listening to uh, Tom Vassell's review. I'm sure your readers are all familiar with Tom Vassell, the sort of the premier game reviewer. And he had a very, very favorable review of Fantasy Realms, which was very nice. But one thing he said that I, I disagreed with was that the theme is unimportant. And you know, if you've played Betrayal at House on the Hill, you know that that is a very thematic game. And actually, to me, theme is very important. And so first I came up with the list of suits. I, you know, once I had picked the fantasy theme, 
And then I started just thinking about how those things react to each other. So most of the different blankings, the different combos and so forth, they're all thematic. And they were inspired by the theme of, you know, okay, a, an airship. Well, it's going to need an army to crew the airship. Uh, what does fire do? You know, the wildfire burns everything that is flammable. What, what would burn and what wouldn't? And so uh, I knew that I wanted different kinds of things, that there would, should be a card that asked you to collect cards of the same suit and another card that should uh, allow you to collect suit cards of different suits. But with many of those cards, I just tried to let the, uh, the idea of the card, the theme of the card, inform how it could work. Uh, the Basilisk. Well, the Basilisk is really dangerous to have on your side because it's going to turn all of your own armies to stone. So that's why it blanks what it blanks. If you played the game, you also know that after you've played it a couple of times, you just start to get a sense for what cards go together and what cards don't. And it's not really that hard to sort of memorize what some of the combos are, so you know what you're looking for. Oh, I've got the sword, I need the shield and, a, and a, somebody to wield them. And those are all thematic in a way that uh, I don't think would have worked as well if it had just been a numbers card. Well, I want this card to go with two other cards or this card to go with three other cards. Really, all of that was just an outgrowth of the stories that I wanted to tell. And in fact, although Fantasy Realms is, you know, to some extent a numbers game, and while you're playing the game, you're, you're sitting there and, at least I am, you know, adding and subtracting and trying to figure out, okay, if I draw this card and discard this card, which, how many points am I going to get? It's doing all these numbers in, in your head as you're playing. My family, at least, when we finish the game, and we all lay down our hands and add up our scores, we then add another phase, and I think I've actually got this in the rule book now, we've added another phase where we each tell a story about our hands. And, you know, so the princess went on a quest and she met the uh, Beastmaster and together they went to face the dragon. And, you know, we, we, we sort of have each card or each hand of cards uh, tell a quest or a kingdom or a realm. And that's really where the idea of fantasy realms comes from, that each hand is, a, is its own world, its own, its, own, uh, its own story. In fact, uh, I also put into the latest edition of the rulebook, I believe it's in there, that that is now the official tiebreaker. If you end up with two hands that are tied, then... You both have to tell a story about your hand, and the other players vote on who's got the best story. It doesn't happen that often, but it's certainly something that is going to appeal to some gamers who enjoy the storytelling aspect, even though it's not really necessary. Absolutely, but I think it can can be really cool. And uh, yeah, I I also um, appreciate that you just came up with the with the theme of the game because. Um, 
that's something that always uh, bugs me when I think about an expansion. So um, maybe not not only with respect to Fantasy Realms and its expansion, but maybe from a more general perspective. What do you think is more important for an expansion? Is it uh, to add some kind of new theme to the game or um, adding new mechanics, new gameplay to the game? For example, you have, uh, you have this... Um, And the new the undead in the game so you could i know you have other things as well but you could say this is the undead themed expansion for the game um, and market the game like that um, do you think this is uh, more important or do you think it's more important to give the the, the 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 players some kind of new mechanics as you as you also do in the expansion we didn't talk about that mm -hmm. i am not a big fan of abstract games i like to have pictures in my mind as i'm playing them And I don't, I, I guess I have designed a few games that are sort of abstract mazes or whatever, but certainly most of my favorite games are a certain amount of story to them. Uh, even something like Seven Wonders, which is a game that my family plays all the time. You know, there's, there's a story there. You're building a city. You're, you're building the bathhouse. You're uh, in, the, in the expansions, you know, you're getting Alexander the Great to work for you. And I think that that's very important. Uh, I, I was also thinking of Seven Wonders when you were asking your question, because I think that that is a great example of how expansions can really add a lot to a game. You know, that's a game that we played a lot when it came out, and then we sort of got tired of it, we put it away. But then every time we start getting tired of it, a new expansion comes out. And all of a sudden, the game is fresh, and it's exciting, and it's new, and we want to play it all over again. And then we can play it with combinations of different expansions. And that really has, has kept the game fresh and exciting for uh, most of the playgroups that I work with in my family. Okay. And, um, yeah, you maybe uh, let, let, let's talk a little bit more about... Um, the the expansions in in general so um well, also i should have i should also have mentioned that yeah. the three extra suits in the expansion are not really the main theme or not the title theme anyway the title is the cursed horde we actually have two expansions in one in this and so the the three extra suits are one expansion but then there are also a new deck of cards called the the cursed cards And these are little one-shot special abilities that you could do. Things like, um, instead of drawing a card from the deck, you could draw two cards from the deck and discard two cards. Or you can look at somebody else's hand. Or you can look at the cards on the bottom of the deck and put them back. Or uh, draw three cards and keep one. So things like that. And each of those abilities is a cursed item that uh, gives you negative points. There are a couple that give you positive points as well if you take something that is a, a disadvantage, but most of them are negative points. And so again, it's just a way to keep it fresh, to keep it interesting. If you've played the game a lot, as I know many people do, uh, once you get the expansion, you want to get it out one more time and, and give it another shot. And I think it adds value to a game to have expansions, not just with mine, but with anything. And a lot of what's on my game, game cabinet are games that have managed to keep themselves fresh with expansions. 
Um, cool. So, what was there anything that was different uh, when it came to designing the expansion compared to designing the original game? So, was there a, an a phase during the design process that you had to, to uh, put more effort in or uh, was it just uh, super smooth because you had already the experience from the from the original game? Um, so what was some kind of the difference of creating the expansion versus the original game? I was probably able to be a little bit more systematic with the uh, playtesting version of it. Of course, in the uh, in the original game and in the expansion, I had a sense of, you know, okay, these are the cards that I'm going to compare each other to that are looking for one other card. These are the ones that are looking for two other cards. These are ones that are looking for any card from a particular suit of five. This one's looking for ten, one, any one of ten different cards, like the Warhorse. And so I, I had that sort of power distribution where I could fit the new cards into that. But then I also wanted to make them different as well. Uh, and as I say, in the playtesting, then I sort of had my system worked out where I could start recording how valuable each card was, how often they were used, and so forth. And, and I think that that experience certainly helped to streamline the playtesting process a little bit. Okay, so I want to respect your time um, and uh, would say let's, let's uh, come to, to, to an end now. Well, actually, there's one other thing that I wanted to talk about. Which, yeah, absolutely. Uh, go ahead. Uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and throw it here for your audience. I don't know if this is uh, officially announced or not. I don't even know if I'm supposed to talk about this or not. But if anybody's listened to the whole podcast, you, you can get this bit of information for free. Maybe don't put it up on the internet right away, but you can you can tell your friends that... Uh, About a year or so ago, WizKids contacted me that they have a new franchise and uh, they wanted to know if I wanted to do a Star Trek game that was based on Fantasy Realms mechanics. So Whoa. I have been working on that and hopefully that will be uh, within the next year or so. Uh, that will be one of the next things that's going to be coming out. It's going to be all based on Star Trek The Next Generation and a deck of cards that are based on the characters, the places, the enemies of the entire run of Star Trek The Next Generation and looking for different combos. And again, there's a sort of storytelling element there. The idea is that your hand will come together and be an episode of the series in which these characters and enemies and so forth have, uh, have various interactions. And the twist, the new mechanic this time, is that in addition to the, the people, places, and so forth, you also have to have uh, a separate deck of cards that are the plot cards. And at the end of the game, you have to have at least one or two plots that will interact with these characters to, to give you the, the actual gist, the actual uh, results of the episode, whether you are trapped in the holodeck or whether you are... Uh, trying to fix the Enterprise before it blows up, or whether you're involved with the Klingon Civil War, each of those will give you points for, for different, having different things in your hand, as well as the way in which those cards react to each other. So That's uh, so awesome. That's something to look forward to. 
Yeah, I'm really looking forward to. And uh, if you if you want uh, a free playtester, please uh, please uh, con consider myself because I'm a huge Star Trek fan, as many others. And um, yeah, I I would love to uh, love to get my hands on that. Thanks so much for sharing. Okay, so before we before we end, is there anything um, else that you you want to want want to share with regards to um, to um, ex creation of expansions or uh, fantasy realms? I mean, you already dropped the big value bomb with the with the Star Trek game that you were working on, but um, maybe there's something else that you would like to to share about the expansion or when and where the people can expect to um, to, to to buy them or learn more about it. Let's see, there is a, as I said, Tom Vassell did do a review of the expansion. I do not actually have a copy of the expansion yet, but apparently he managed to get a hold of one. So if you'd <laughs> like to, if you'd really like to know more about the expansion, you can go onto Board Game Geek and look up Fantasy Realms, the Cursed Horde, and you can link to that, uh, see that video where he reviews the expansion. He also has just done a new review of the original game. He did a review when it first came out four years ago, but he did another one. He said he liked it back then, but he likes it even more now. So both of those have links. And uh, again, I don't know exactly when it's going to be shipped to the stores, but uh, hopefully it will be soon. And if any of your listeners are executives in gaming companies, uh, I do have... Mm, over a dozen other designs that are pretty much ready to be going into playtesting and uh, ready to be considered. I'm always happy to open up negotiations with new companies, and I'm always looking to get new games published. So hopefully you'll be seeing some of those in future years as well. Absolutely. That would be awesome. Okay, then thank you very much for being a guest on the show, Bruce. Um, it was an honor to talk to you and I can't wait to get my hands on um, yeah, on the new expansion and the Star Trek game. Okay, great. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah, uh, thank you very much. And to all the listeners, thanks for listening and until next week, keep shooting for the moon and nerd like a boss. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye.